The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. company and three is a crowd, unless you're talking about protection as an asset class or Jack, Chrissy, and Janet. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Retire with Style. I'm Wade. I'm here with Alex. And it's a very special episode today, not because we have a very special guest, but because we're trying some new technology. Uh, this is being live streamed on LinkedIn, as, and it's also a live recording that we'll use for the podcast. Now, Alice, we did not do much promotion for this, so we may not have many people watching the live version today, but if anyone does have questions, we're able to receive your questions and address those throughout the podcast as we're doing this on LinkedIn. And if this all works well, it's a possibility in the future that we can have more interactive podcast sessions as well. It's a pretty exciting uh, future potential opportunity there. Yeah, no, uh, what a time to be alive. Wait, what it's to be like. No, uh, we didn't do much announcements, August, because we this is our first one, and we didn't want to get too many folks on it just in case, you know, we, we become plunged with it. So we wanted to leave it at a, a good manageable number. So I thought if we just did an impromptu live session, you know, that that would be good. But uh, that being the case, it's not just a testing mechanism for today. I, I we thought it was a great uh, opportunity for us to discuss a, a paper that we just came out with, with, you know, sponsored by the Alliance for Lifetime Income. I, I, I read it. I thought it was fascinating. Wade wrote it. I'm sure he thought it was pretty good as well. <laughs> I'm not even going to hit the publish button on that bad boy. Right, Wade? Yeah, you could say that. Not necessarily sponsored, but yeah, it's it was released through the their website as a white paper, research paper for the Retirement Income Institute with the, the Alliance for Lifetime Income. And it's called Protection as an Asset Class. And really, it, it's as a, I wanted to create as simple of an example as I could, but that really walks through a lot of the discussion there is or that we've had about annuities, both in terms of for lifetime income protections, but also simply as a potential asset class in a portfolio. And Jason Fichtner, who has been the guest on our podcast many times in the past. He's had this theme that he called it protection as an asset class and asked me if I could write something with that as the underlying theme. And yeah, that's that's really where we are, where if we think about asset allocation, there can be a role for the types of structured returns that annuities can provide, even without lifetime income provisions, but just providing a structured return that moves away from the bell curve distribution of the financial markets to provide interesting risk return trade-offs in a portfolio that can potentially expand the efficient frontier, even from a pure accumulation focus, and then further extending that to look at the retirement income phase as well and the efficient frontier for retirement income. Wait, uh, I think that's great. And let me let me ask you a question here. Uh, this goes back to the title, and this is 
Whereas, you know, I, I come from the investment world side of things and I'm always, I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. I, I love the paper. So, uh, you know, that's the, the overarching theme, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of folks reading and, and the like, when you say protection as an asset class, some people can have the tendency to think you just throw around that term asset class because they, they view an asset class and, and if, if my peer investment had on an asset class would be sort of a group of stocks that have some sort of price risk to them. You know, the, where if you allocate to them, there's an expected rate of return because there's a, you know, there's a, there's a risk to them and you're compensated for taking on that risk. You know, there's, there's a, there, there's that piece to it where like, like I technically don't like technology stocks are an asset class. There's nothing special to technology stocks whereas value stocks are an asset class. You follow? And so the investment purists may look at this as a protection as an asset class. That's not right. You know, that, that kind of thing. How, how would you respond to something like that? Yeah. And I, I think there could be some uh, potentially a good point in there. And I, I know when I was studying for the CFA exam, we received a definition of asset classes <laughs> and I keep meaning to look back and find that it was like, there were 10 characteristics you need to be an asset class. And for the life of me, I can't remember what those all were. <laughs> To actually go through, you're gonna have to return that designation, Wade. Unfortunately, that's right. Right, I, I don't know what an asset class's definition, but uh, moving away from the potential like ten items you need for an asset class, for me, it's really is there something here where it behaves differently from other quote unquote asset classes? And when you look at, it's more the idea of having these structured returns so that you have a different downside risk, upside return trade off. That for me, that could, I mean, I even before this idea of protection as an asset class, for a long time, I've heard the idea annuities as an asset class. And at first, I didn't know if that was a good term to use. I think for some insurance companies, their compliance departments don't allow that terminology to be used. But I think other insurance companies really do promote the idea of annuities as asset classes. And, and in that context, it's more about the, the structured returns. And if it behaves differently from stocks and if it behaves differently from bonds, I'm ultimately comfortable. I mean, it may not be, if we look at the technical definition of an asset class, it may not meet all the necessary criteria because it's more of a, it's a derivative <laughs> of other asset classes. It's yeah. a return derived from other asset classes, but I'm, I'm comfortable with the looser kind of general everyday usage. Again, I, I, I get it. In fact, that's where I landed on it. I say, look, it's ultimately a derivative of an ad, of, of the stock. So it, it, it kind of, there is price risk in it. And then you throw in the, the structured piece of it. It's almost like it works well within the overall portfolio construction, you know, how it bounces off the others. And there's a piece of the, the annuity component where you are bringing in sort of this pooled Sort of mortality into it, not yet, but maybe when you get into the the writer piece of the article. But no, no, I just wanted to throw that out there simply because, the, you know, there's people listening and asking, and, you know, sometimes it, it gets thrown around, and I, I just want I don't want them to discount the significance of this article just off of that title. The the other thing that as you get into this, that I, I started thinking about is the term, and sometimes it's misused, and so I, I don't want people to kind of again discount everything because of this. Bond replacement, bond. This is a bond replacement. This is a bond alternative. You can we can wait till we get into that. But you know, some people get nitpicky about those terms as well. And so I, I just want to make sure you know you express it in the way that you intend it. 
and mm-hmm. people don't right. get tripped up on the, the semantics. Yeah, I think it's annuities are part of the fixed income family and fixed income is in a way another name for bonds, but uh, going beyond that, maybe they provide a set of characteristics that could work better than traditional bond asset classes. And that's really the context of how we're looking at this, both in an accumulation perspective and in a retirement income distribution perspective in the article, both scenarios. <laughs> so to get into it a little bit, indeed, this was a, it, this article was released in May. It's called Protection as an Asset Class. We've got the, the cameras going today. I have my printed copy. I printed it in black and white, so it's not as beautiful as the- Wait, that's the, a show and tell. I don't, I don't think you've ever done show and tell like that. <laughs> my notes, wait. You've got the notes there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's so the Retirement Income Institute with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, uh, it's so Jason had asked me to write something that was really meant to be just a, more like a column, but I was trying. So it's not a fully research article. It ended up being released as part of the research article series, but I wouldn't necessarily say it was original research. It's more a column that ended up being 3,500 words. So it's it's not like a full-length article, but it's also not a short column either. And it, it's providing a simple case study of we just we take the BlackRock capital market assumptions for large cap U.S. equities and for aggregate U.S. bonds, and then we play around with that to create well, what about a fixed index annuity uh, based on on where they are in today's marketplace as linked to that large cap U.S. stock index uh, price returns with the dividends taken out. Uh, we can dig into those assumptions more precisely, but but then. But what if we look at an asset allocation model with the stocks and the bonds, and then what happens if we add in the fixed index annuity who has credited interest linked to that stock market index and see what that does both from an accumulation portfolio efficient frontier and from the retirement income efficient frontier. Okay. And wait, uh, you made a statement in the paper where you're talking about the, there was a current low rate environment back then, although I don't think May is all that lowered. Does this, do you see this analysis changing in different rate environments or technically speaking, everyone, it's, it's an issue that all asset classes will have to face anyway. So whether it's low or high, proportionately the return, you know, the outcome will be the same or is that <laughs> not the case? Yeah, and this is not, I mean, we're still below historical average bond yields, but we're not necessarily in that low interest rate world anymore. These BlackRock capital market assumptions, there's always a lag in the process. So even though the article came out in May, they, they don't update their assumptions. All the, Their assumptions came out in February based on the end of 2022. And at that point, the bonds, U.S. aggregate bonds, they're projecting over the long term next 30 years at a 3.8% average uh, return which is a little bit lower than the historical numbers, but not extremely low. And then stocks, they have a, a 9.3% average return, the arithmetic average return over the next 30 years. So it, it's a little bit on the low side, but not extremely low. And just with fixed index annuities in that same time period, we're looking at about a 12% cap based on that interest rate environment and the, the market for financial derivatives. So that's how I base it. Yes, if interest rates are much lower, such as in 2021, you might be looking at 1% bond returns, but then the cap on the fixed index annuity might only be 3%. Yeah. And you just sort of reset the whole analysis, but at it from a lower base. 
when interest rates are higher, you can get more yield out of the fixed income side, uh, the annuity or the bond. And so you're less pressured to rely on the stocks. But nonetheless, it's still the same general story, regardless of the interest rate environment. Everything's going to be moving up or down together. Gotcha. And so, right, um, in terms of then, I think we've, well, we, so in past episodes at this point, we talked about how fixed index annuities work and so forth. I don't know if you want to have a quick primer on that or if we're ready to. I think, well, because what, you, what you're essentially going to do is look at a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and fixed index annuities, you know, and, and how those allocation works. I, I, I think a couple of points that would be interesting just as a quick thing is, the taxable non-taxable account, you know, decision that you made in this, uh, and uh, just and 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 the caps, you know, the, you know the, the the constraints that you have within the FIAs, and why did you choose an FIA and not a RILA or, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this trying to keep the word count as low as possible, making things pretty simple uh, when there is a need to make assumptions, trying to lean and not in the favor of making the annuity look better. So in that regard, didn't get too into the whole tax issue, which means effectively the stocks and bonds would be held in like an IRA. So it's a tax deferred environment. The annuity is also tax deferred. It's, it's a deferred annuity. You don't pay taxes till you take the distributions. So then the taxes work the same way for both the investment asset classes and the fixed index annuity. If the investments were in a taxable portfolio, it would change things a little bit. The bonds ha- would have taxation on an ongoing basis. The stocks, you'd you'd have taxes on your dividends, but then the long-term capital gains would be taxed at a lower rate. Uh, but but well, the FIA would look a little better if you looked yeah. at just taxable account. Uh, the, the investments would look better. In yeah, sorry. Taxable account. I, I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> the bonds would not look better. The, the stocks could look a little better, but the bonds would look worse because you're not getting tax deferral, you're paying taxes every year on the bond uh, coupons. So, but the, I guess the, and I, I started off with a bad question. Effectively, you, when you're comparing it from an allocation standpoint, you made it so that you weren't, you were presenting the FIAs when you're comparing everything in its, not worst case, but in a, in not necessarily in a beautiful light. You wanted to make sure that you, you didn't like give them any quote, quote unquote, advantages. Yeah, just trying to provide as fair a comparison as possible. I've done plenty of other analyses where I incorporate all the tax aspects and I compare annuities against taxable stocks and bonds as well as tax deferred stocks and bonds. But that adds to the word count quite a bit. And so (laughs) I just sort of left that aside for this shorter piece. The other piece that I thought, because when you're comparing the allocation and, you know, when we're talking about the methodology now, right? And so something that I think that you did was good, and this is why FIAs are good as opposed to, let's say, uh, a, a deferred annuity or something like that, is that you can frame it in a manner that's similar to an investable portfolio in, this, in the sense that you see a contract value. So you see the asset, there's liquidity. Remember, even though we're talking about the FIA, and this goes back to the, the little uh, annuities 101, you're not necessarily annuitizing. Right, you said, "Oh, we're we're not gonna annuitize it in this." You didn't annuitize anything. In no, this nothing's study. annuitized. Yeah, nothing's annuitized. So you see the contract value. There is liquidity for the asset. 
you know, there will be income to be had later on when you look at that portion of it. And so, you know, I, I thought that was, I don't think you had to explain anything because we already did it in previous episodes, but right, that kind of, you know, that, that provides a nice little piece on that. I guess what would be interesting is discussing the benefit base in the crediting system once more, because that's how you begin to determine upside on the income and the like. Mm -hmm. And then we'll maybe come back to that when we get to the retirement income part of it, that would be jumping okay. ahead a little bit. But for the, it's just real quick on fixed index annuities. The way they work is the insurance company buys bonds to protect your principal. And then with any leftover funds, accounting for the fact that bonds will pay interest you you can the insurance company keeps part of that for the cost of business and then uses a rest it's called the options budget to provide upside exposure to the index so you have principal protection you can't have a loss uh, and then you will be able to purchase uh, call options on the uh, this large cap us stock index and we're assuming you're also going to sell a call option and the pricing lines up so that you end up with 100% participation in the price returns of the index up to the cap rate of 12%. And at the start of the year, the dividend yield on large cap US stocks was about 1.7%. So I just use that as a fixed number. I take 1.7% out of the returns that the, the total returns being simulated to give me the price returns, which stocks as an asset class, get their dividends, but the FIA is being simulated on the price returns of the index with that dividend removed. Okay. And uh, the, the other piece that uh, when you're looking at apples to apples that you mentioned in the paper in, in terms of the methodology is that uh, similar to the taxable piece of it in terms of drags, the FIA, you assume the internal cost of the product. Whereas if you're looking at the stock and bond portfolio, you assume no advisory fees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this is an assumption that helps the investments relative to the annuity, that the annuity is priced based on what you see in the marketplace at the time, which was 12% caps. And that, that has an internal spread taken out. So there are fees, not external fees, but the internal spread fee incorporated into those numbers. Maybe without any fees, that cap could be 13 or 14%, for instance. But on the investment side, I'm not assuming any investment fees. So the uh, asset class, the stock and bond asset classes are getting their full total return, gross of any fees. If there were fees, that would reduce the performance of the investments relative to the annuity. So that's where giving the investments the benefit of the doubt by not taking out fees. Okay, so then you've set it up. And then the investments is the, the portfolio is essentially the S&P 500. Uh, an aggregate bond index, and then an FIA based on the S&P 500, correct? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, international stocks, I forget. Yeah, you had mentioned the ETHO, but I don't know if... Oh, yeah, the, right? Yeah. yeah, there's lots of uh, indices that can be used with the FIAs and so forth. And of course, real investment portfolios probably use some international diversification. But for the purposes of this exercise, protection is an asset class. We're not looking at like international diversification. And especially it's July 4th weekend. You want to stick to the USA <laughs> right now. <laughs> right. No, no. All right. And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the setup is effectively that. You want to see the do bin, fixed index annuities improve the traditional efficient frontier of a portfolio composed <laughs> of stocks and bonds, right? So the, the, the last maybe precursor to 
to what you find, and this is for the uninitiated group, is the concept of the efficient frontier. And, you know, and does that even, you know, and later on, does that transition into retirement income? Because I think you, you always give that a, a nice treatment to it. But, you know, for folks listening in the podcast, you know, what efficient frontier, what's that all about? Yes. Yeah, so going back to the 1950s, Harry Markowitz developed modern portfolio theory, which just noted investors like higher returns, but they don't like risk. So when you combine different asset classes, you build a diversified portfolio seeking a higher risk-adjusted return. And the efficient frontier of modern portfolio theory is just the, the asset allocation, the, the collection of asset classes that give you either the highest expected return for a given level of volatility or the lowest volatility for a given expected return. And the efficient frontier is just the collection of, as you move along the efficient frontier, higher potential returns alongside higher volatility. And then to have an efficient asset allocation, you're going to want to end up with some point along the efficient frontier. Are you a financial professional looking to learn more about the RISA and retirement income best practices? Well, if you are, you should join our Retirement Income Masterclass on Monday, August 28th and Tuesday, August 29th. You can sign up at risaprofile.com slash advisors. That's risaprofile.com slash advisors. Okay. So you're seeing, and it's usually just done with bonds and stocks, and that's where you get that 60-40 bond portfolio bond to, I mean, stock to bond portfolio and the like. So how much do you add with regards to uh, fixed index annuities to sort of maybe provide a more optimal, efficient frontier? Now, I, I think it's helpful when folks realize, so when you did this analysis, you effectively have an unbiased takeoff through what's known as an optimizer. Correct? Can you take them through that? Like who determines the asset allocations for this and, and how do we, you know, how do we kind of figure it out that line? Yeah. Yeah. The, what you're doing there is you're basically just looking at, well, what's all the different ways I could combine these three asset classes. And of course, if you get down to, well, 99.1475% this asset <laughs> class, it's, it's too much, but if you take it at like one percentage point increments, you just look at, okay, well, here's all the different combinations. This is, if I put this much in stocks, that much in bonds, that much to FIAs so that the overall allocation adds up to 100%, that's an option. What is the return and risk profile of that option? And you just calculate that for every possible option of how you could mix up the stocks and bonds and the FIA. And then you plot points for all of these. And then you determine which points give you the best trade-off of the highest returns for the, the, and the lowest volatilities or the, the combination that return volatility frontier. Okay. And so to set that up, what, what did you find for, uh, you know, over the long term? Well, I, I can read the, the table right here and, and the table that you had, when you're looking at things, the arithmetic mean for stocks, you know, was coming in at 9.3% with a standard deviation of 17.3. 17.3 means that again, two thirds of the time, the return was nine plus or minus 17. Yeah. Uh, and that's, is, on, we, wait, you're talking about the Monte Carlo simulations, but those are coming then to match what the BlackRock capital market assumptions were. So that's, I'm getting those numbers because that's what BlackRock had as their assumptions and that's what I used for the, the analysis. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. We're, so there it is. We're, so these, these are the inputs going in for these. As, uh, so for bonds, they're coming in at 
average return with a standard deviation of 5.1. And this is where it gets interesting, right? The fixed index annuity, 6.1 average with a standard deviation of 5.4. And so the theoretically, what Wade was alluding to earlier with MET was, you know, the higher return, you're going to have to accept higher standard deviation. Fixed index annuities provides an interesting risk return profile, you know, which you, you, it looks like it's a nice return relative to the standard deviation volatility, quote unquote, that comes with that. Right, right. If you take the dividend yield out of the stock, you're left with, that would be like 7.6% as an average arithmetic mean with the volatility. When you then translate that into a the, the fixed index annuity where you're, you, you can't, if that returns ever less than zero, you get zero. If that returns ever greater than 12%, you get 12%. And then you get any number in between, you end up with an average return of 6.1% which is quite a bit high, not, it's lower than the, the stock return, but it's quite a bit higher than the bond, the 3.8% bond return, 6.1 versus 3.8. And then when you look at the volatilities, and that's where the standard deviation, you gotta just be a little bit loose with the idea that modern portfolio theory assumes a bell curve distribution on everything. The fixed index annuity is a structured return. It doesn't have a bell curve distribution. So it doesn't necessarily even make 100% sense to talk about the standard deviation. But if we play a little bit loose there, we can say that, well, standard deviation is 5.4% compared to 5.1% for bonds. So slightly more volatile, a much higher return. Uh, that's a pretty good risk return trade-off. Now, the other aspect of where that structured return comes into play, in any given year, the, the bond index has a, about a 23% chance of providing a negative return the stocks have a 31% chance of providing a negative return. But with the fixed index annuity, there's a 0% chance of getting a negative return. And that's this idea of, it's not a bell curve. <laughs> it is a structured return. It can't be negative. And so, so you have these characteristics. So intuitively, even without running the analysis to show the efficient frontier and all of that, you can see intuitively what's going on. Because if you take the fixed index annuities, what you're doing is you're, you're using options that have market-like, you know, uh, potential. But because their options are going to be limited on the upside, but they're also going to be limited on the downside. You know, which so, but you get returns closer to the market, but because you're structuring and you're cutting off the tails of the return dispersion, you're getting volatility that's more akin to a bond. That doesn't mean they're bonds or, or anything like that, but when you're constructing a portfolio, if you can bring in assets or if you can bring in return characteristics that complement each other, all the better. And if all of a sudden you're bringing in, you know, a, a degree or two less than stock market returns and a with a degree or two more than bond volatility, then intuitively you can see how that would be very valuable within a portfolio that comes with stocks without even running anything, right? Wait, you can, you can just kind of get a sense of, of, uh, of what you're going to see here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The FIs much higher average return about the same volatility. And then correlation is something that helps bonds. So bonds were not correlated with stocks, but the FIA, because it's linked to a, the stock return, 
it has a 0.86 correlation with the, the stock index. So usually lower correlations are helpful. That's one area where the bonds are in a better spot than the FIA. But yeah, it's all about, well, now we need to build the efficient frontier from these characteristics. The FIA is a much higher average return, slightly higher volatility. It'd be nice if it was less, but it's, it's about the same. And then it does have that higher correlation with stocks. But overall, is that a set of characteristics that will be helpful to the portfolio or not? And that's where the, uh, the, the next step is creating that efficient frontier and seeing what happens. Drum roll, please. <laughs> not, and, and, so, and so that's that's the point, that when you look at, if we constrain to only use stocks and bonds, uh, you get worse outcomes than if you allow fixed index annuities into the mix. That the efficient frontier is going to allow for fixed index annuities. And specifically, uh, the fixed index annuity replaces bonds for most of the allocations that the efficient frontier i have an all the the more going from most aggressive to least aggressive so most aggressive it's 100 percent stocks but as we look for portfolios with lower expected return but less volatility we lower the stock allocation but we don't allocate to bonds we allocate to the fixed index annuity in lieu of bonds and that gives us a higher risk-adjusted return. And then eventually at the very, the, the portfolios with the lowest return, lowest volatility characteristics, there is a slight period where the fixed index annuity becomes a stock replacement because the lowest returning portfolios are bonds and fixed index annuity. But for most of the allocations, it's stocks and fixed index annuity. And, and it's even though fixed index annuities have returns linked to the stock index and are highly correlated with stocks, they still provide a better overall investment performance compared to what bonds are able to contribute to the portfolio. Because you've cut off the tails. And so you, you so you, you, you know, what's risk, right? Risk is usually seen as volatility. The moment you cut off, in a portfolio construction standpoint, you're going to show how risk could be something else when it comes to income. And, and actually, I, I buy that argument more than just risk being volatility. But if you, you go under the argument that risk is just volatility, well, you're getting if you're getting derivative returns of the stock market with cut off with, with the tails cut off and you're blending that a little bit with the actual stock market returns, it it should do it should do better. I, I think the implications here are interesting because it causes you to really rethink to some extent what you've been doing. Because, you know, in God we trust, everyone else brings data, right? And if you're accumulating data, if you're accumulating and accumulating, but if you see, you know, the, you see the efficient frontier and it, you realize that maybe there's no need for bonds, it's kind of almost, you're going up against something that's been sacrosanct, you know? Where people are like, yeah, whatever. Or people will say, yeah, that's what people thought with the, the, the CMO, you know, the, the real estate crash, all these mortgage-backed securities that were, protecting this and that and structuring returns and creating synthetics. This is different, you know? This is actually, you're, you're, you're invested in the market, but you're, you know, you're, you're cutting off those tails. So it, it's just a better overall return. And why wouldn't you consider it? Why wouldn't you put it all in? Uh, I mean, you see this way, do you consider, okay, when I, when I do my retirement portfolio, I'm not going to have any bonds. I'm just going to have stocks and FIAs. Yeah, yeah. At the retirement phase, it's 
definitely a possibility. Now, when you are at younger ages, there's liquidity restrictions with fixed annuities. And if you're under 59 and a half, you may be looking at 10% penalties if you needed to get money out for something. So you've got to consider those aspects as well. But no, purely from a portfolio modeling perspective, a structured return to the fixed index annuity, it looks very attractive compared to traditional like bond asset classes. So so what do you what would you say to somebody? And again, this is where I, I actually am in this camp, but this feels different. And you see this all the time. Oh, this is a bond replacement. Oh, this is a bond proxy. Oh, this is a bond alternative. And they're a little too fast and loose with that. To me, I'm I'm not saying this takes the place of bonds in the sense that it does what bonds do from a risk return standpoint. I see it as just this is just a better option. A better fixed income option. Yeah, exactly. Right? I, I don't I I don't see it as okay, this is going to replace the role of bonds in terms of the safety and you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's just a better yeah, there you go, fixed income option. I, I agree with that. Yeah. And that that's kind of the punchline from from this accumulation part. But in your paper, you said there were two pieces. There's this from an accumulation standpoint and things like that. You inject fixed index annuity into this, into an efficient portfolio, into an efficient frontier, and voila. Now, another thing that could have been lost in this is you use an agnostic optimizer. So an optimizer, you know, a mean variance optimizer just, just looks at the return standard deviation and it provides the best combination. And if you notice... When you let it run, the mean variance optimizer removed bonds completely, you know, from that standpoint. So uh, that's that's an interesting thing. Usually, you're going to have to constrain a certain amount. That being the case, how else? What's the other angle of this? If someone says, "Well, volatility isn't the measure of risk, especially in retirement; it's more income." Well, right. When you get to retirement, you now face a new set of risks. You have longevity risk. You have the sequence of returns risk where you can't rely just on average market returns. You have to be worried if you get a bad return early on, you don't get to benefit as much from the idea of stocks for the long run and so forth. And and so in the context of financial planning, risk isn't so much the short-term volatility that modern portfolio theory measures. Risk is I can't meet my goals. If I have a lifetime spending goal, I've got a lifestyle in mind that I'm trying to fund Risk is that I get to the point where I can't fund my spending for my entire retirement horizon. And and so you can create an efficient frontier for retirement income that just updates and modifies the definitions of what's risk and what's return or what's reward in that context. Risk is I can't meet my spending goals. Reward or returns are I met my spending goals and then I have an extra, I have more surplus available for legacy and liquidity at the end. And that's really how you frame uh, efficient frontiers for retirement income. It's changing the definition of risk and reward to move from the short-term perspective to the uh, lifetime perspective. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. 
Gotcha. Okay. And I thought, you know, I, I read this paper cold. When I was reading it, and I, you know, you decided to include income, I, I was thinking for a second, oh, I wonder if you included the the guaranteed living withdrawal benefits as almost like a reinvestment into it as a investment return if you got income, you included it as part of the total return, but you didn't. How, how did you assess the ability to uh, provide income for life as, as a risk factor? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and before I get into that, actually, two questions came in, and I oh, okay. apologize if we never actually said this. Did we not say what FIA means? Uh, two questions came in asking what FIA stands for. It it stands for fixed index annuity. It's oh, we I, did. I hope we said that at some point, but I I just also did another workshop explaining how annuities work today, and so it might have never actually said fixed index annuity on today's session. It's it's a fixed annuity. And it's it's a fixed index annuity. It's linking so that its performance is linked to some external index, in this case, U.S. large cap stocks, a.k.a. S&P 500. That being said, though, yeah, getting back to your question, Alex. So keeping things simple, I, I wanted to just add a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit that's reflective of what's going on in the financial markets at the time of this research. And so if we have a 65-year-old, I thought a pretty reasonable assumption, you'd have a 5.5% payout rate if you turn on income immediately. And then the rider fee that I'll charge to, to pay for the protections, it's 1.1% of the high watermark of what that contract was worth, which would be its initial premium. Uh, and then in the early years of the contract, there is some potential for growth. So if you do get the step up, it, 1.1% of the highest watermark, which would also increase your guaranteed income. But then, because we're going to be looking over a long-term retirement horizon, eventually the contract value will deplete, and you'll enter the settlement phase where you're paying for this income rider that will support lifetime income at 5.5% of either the premium you paid or if you did achieve a new high watermark at some point, 5.5% uh, of that high watermark you achieved in the early retirement years. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant here, Wade, because we had two questions about if this is an FIA, and you were talking about like sort of terms that are within the FIAs, and if they weren't realizing we were talking about fixed index annuities, then they may not know all those terms that you just mentioned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. So GLWB, Guaranteed Lifetime Withdrawal Benefit, this is an optional rider you can pay for that will support a guaranteed lifetime income. And then the whole, so was it our last episode that we explained all this? <laughs> I think if you look at last week's episode, that's where we talked about GLWBs on FIAs. And we'll, we'll go yes, into it was, actually. more detail there. Uh, but it's the way this is just real quick. You spend your own money. The GLWB tells you how much you're allowed to distribute each year and still maintain your guarantee for what your allowed lifetime income will be during the lifetime of the annuitant on the contract. And if you get to the point where you spend down the full contract value, which with an FIA, you generally will uh, sometime around life expectancy. You're not generally going to keep this contract positive forever. But once that happens, you then enter a settlement phase where you will continue to receive that same payment every year 
uh, from the insurance company's uh, reserves since you you, de you depleted your own contract value. And the way the insurance company was able to pay for that, to provide you that lifetime protection, was during the time that you did have a contract value, on an annual basis, they're charging you a 1.5% fee, not on the contract value, but on what that initial premium, which over time, as you spend on the contract value, the initial premium is higher than the remaining contract value. So 1.1% 1 1 every year of the premium until the contract value is depleted. Then you enter the settlement phase where the insurance company continues to provide that lifetime income. What does the benefit base increasing have to do with any of this? Well, usually, like the term benefit base comes up more with the variable annuities. That's I'm what sorry. I'm trying not to say it as much right now because we're talking about okay. fixed index annuities. But it's it, there's still a, a benefit base here if you got a new high watermark. If if the contract value increased from its initial level when you at the time you paid the premium, the benefit base resets to that new high watermark. And your rider fees charged off of that, but also your five and a half percent payment is based off of that higher value as well. Okay. Sorry to introduce confusion there, Wade. No, no, it's still it's still a relevant term. It's just we're not talking about the whole roll up rate benefit based thing like yeah, no, I got it. in the <laughs> variable annuity world. Okay. So then what you did in this part of the study is you look at the income. The lifetime income, you know, uh, allocations of lifetime income across uh, stocks, bonds, and FIAs, and which one provided effectively the highest lifetime income. Is that correct? Well, it's more, we have a spending goal in mind, and we're seeing which allocation allows us to meet that goal. And then if right, we do meet it, it provides the most surplus wealth at the end as well. And so we're 65 years old. We're, we're just looking at a simple case study where we've got $100,000 to work with. And what we want to do with that, we're 65. We want to be able to fund spending through age 100. We're worried we might outlive our money. We want to make sure our plan can work through 100. We want to fund $4,000 with a 2% annual cost of living adjustment through age 100. Risk is that we're not able to fund that goal through age 100. And because this is based on the Monte Carlo simulations, there's a whole distribution of outcomes. We specifically define risk as in the 10th percentile. So 90% of the time you do better than this, 10% of the time you do even worse. But in the 10th percentile, how much of your spending goal were you not able to meet through age 100, assuming you lived to age 100? And that's how we define risk. It's not meeting that spending goal, even in bad market scenario or in bad market scenarios, I should say. When markets do well, you meet your lifetime spending goal. And the reward is looking at then on, on average, you meet your lifetime spending goal and you'll have money left over. So the reward measure is how much money is left over on average at age 100. And that would be the remaining investments plus any contract value in the annuity. Though to be clear, by age 100, you're never going to have any remaining contract value in the annuity. The legacy is generated completely by the investment side. But the reason the annuity could help support a higher legacy nonetheless is over time, more of your spending is covered through the annuity and through the insurance protections of the insurance company. 
And that allows your other investments to not be bothered as much to support the distributions. And so then they have more opportunity to grow. And that's where the legacy can come from. No, that's that, to me. That's more of a that's more of the aha than the than the where does it place on the efficient frontier, because that's important. But that becomes more uh, investment theory or, or or whatnot. I think when you include the the FIAs in this in this income sort of challenge, it becomes more interesting because to your point at the beginning, most of the income. The, the FIA sort of takes care of it and it ultimately just gives the portfolio more room to run, which is ultimately you have a, a better outcome on, on the back end as well. And I think that reflects the practical reality of financial planning scenarios and why you would want to consider this. Yeah, and so then when we make that efficient frontier, where again, we're plotting these different allocations where the risk is what percentage of your lifetime spending could you not meet when markets don't do so well? That specifically the 10 percentile, but just to simplify that when markets don't do well. And then reward is when markets perform at their average level, what's your remaining legacy value at age 100? And so you want to move in the upper left-hand direction. It's the same idea. I want to be able to I want to be able to beat more of my spending goal even when markets perform poorly. And at the same time, I want to provide more legacy when markets do okay. And it's the same punchline. The uh, The worst allocations are just stocks and bonds. Whenever you add an allocation to the FIA, you can get a more efficient outcome. And the efficient frontier is combinations of stocks plus fixed index annuity with the living benefit. There's not a role for bonds in the efficient frontier when it comes to these dual goals of funding the lifetime spending need and preserving money for legacy. If you get to, well, like, so 100% stocks, it's, there's a risk that you won't be able to cover 20% of your spending goal uh, in the 10th percentile, but your legacy is almost $600,000 on average at age 100. And then as you shift along the frontier, you lower the stock allocation and you replace it with FIA, not with uh, bonds. And then the point, so when you get to the allocation that's 40% stocks and six, and this is initially at retirement, 40% into the stocks, 60% into the FIA with the living benefit, which then means subsequently your remaining non-annuity investment piece is 100% stocks. Uh, that allows you to meet 100% of the lifetime spending goal at the 10th percentile and still on average preserve more than $300,000 for, $300, for legacy. And so the efficient frontier is anywhere from the 40% stock and 60% fixed index annuity up through just 100% stocks. But it's, I'm going to increase the stock allocation, reduce the fixed index annuity allocation, but there's no bonds on the efficient frontier. It's, it, this goes back to research I published 10 years ago that was more with a, a SPIA, a single premium immediate annuity, instead of a fixed index annuity. But it was the same idea where the efficient frontier is stocks and lifetime income protections. So it's protection as an asset class. Stocks and lifetime income protections, not stocks and bonds. That having protected income works more efficiently at meeting retirement spending goals than traditional bond asset classes. So that's... But 
but you're also, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the chart and, you know, in, in rough terms, based on the outcomes that you said, you're, you're looking at also legacy differences, like end of life, average value of financial assets at, at 100. You're talking 100,000 plus pretty consistently in terms of value differences. It's not just, you're doing both. You're, you're meeting the lifetime spending goal at a greater clip. But you're you're ending up with even then you're also ending up with a, a, a greater value at the end of a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Maybe to give another example there. So just looking at look at the sixty forty one. It's it's yeah. Sorry, yeah. wait. Well, just so okay. So let's consider like fifty fifty stocks and bonds. Okay. So you got your fifty percent stocks, fifty percent bonds. Uh, that creates a risk of about not meeting seven percent of your lifetime spending needs through age one hundred when markets don't do well. And then on an average, so on average you do meet your spending and on average leaving about $180,000 for legacy. Now, if you compare that to the closest in terms of the risk would be 60% stocks plus 40% fixed index annuity. In that case, you're meeting, or you're taking the risk of about uh, not meeting 6%, so it's better. <laughs> you only miss out on 6% of your spending instead of 7% of your spending in the 10th percentile. But then on average, you've got a lot more upside potential. You're looking at legacies, not $180,000, but over $400,000. Yeah, like 410. Or even look at the 50-50. Yeah. 50 stocks and bonds, look at the 50-50 uh, stocks and FIAs. You're looking at your, I don't know, 3 percentile failure. Even 2%, you're just missing out on about 2% of your spending. Just eyeballing, yeah. And about, what is that, like 380? Yeah, around $380,000 of legacy. So you're meeting more of your spending when markets don't do well. And when markets do well, you meet all your spending and you provide a bigger legacy at the end as well. So, I mean, you're you're kind of, and I think about all the arguments that are made from a, from a very superficial standpoint of, Oh, you don't want a fixed index annuity because of this or because of that. Well, the reality is numbers are the numbers, right? And if you end up injecting them in a portfolio and you, and you have the potential for a greater legacy amount when you're 100 and a greater percentage of achieving your lifetime spending goals, and not by a little bit, by a significant amount, it's hard not to, it's hard just to ignore it. And, you know, it, it's almost like, you're fighting preconceived thoughts as opposed to the data, right? It's a funny thing, right, Wade? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's ultimately why I think, even though I, again, like I said at the beginning, at first, this idea of annuity as an asset class, I wasn't completely on board with. But now, well, I really am comfortable. And the, the title of the article, again, is Protection as an Asset Class. And I feel comfortable uh, that that's a fair way to describe these sorts of results. And, uh, and as you said at the beginning, you're giving bonds and no tax drag right now. Right, right. We are assuming the bonds are in a tax deferred account. Uh, if they were, if you had to pay a, uh, an expense ratio on your stocks and bonds, and especially if your bonds were in a taxable account, uh, that would make the bonds look much worse <laughs> compared to the uh, allocations that include a fixed index annuity. You know, and there it is now. This is fixed index annuities. You said you did something similar with spiels. I think that was the article. Yeah, a long time ago. The original room. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one being great. Uh, it, similar kind of vibe. So you, you, you'll you see this with, with, with other annuities. 
wait, is there, just thinking through this, you split this study into two, right? Okay, let me see this as efficient frontier and let me see it as income. Could you have technically added this uh, rider and used, and considered the rider as a dividend and then if you were to take that amount and just reinvest it as opposed to spending and add it to your returns, that could be a significant plus. You, you follow what I'm getting at? Like, quote unquote, reinvest the rider? <laughs> you don't have yeah, to calculate the internal rate of return on the cash flows that the portfolio generates. Yeah. You, you could frame it that way too. Yeah, that, that would be, you know, uh, you know where it's going to land, but it kind of be interesting, right? Mm -hmm. But all right. No, that's good. Uh, what do you think, Wade? What do you think of this uh, LinkedIn Live? I, again, we did this impromptu, but where? Uh, next, we did get the two questions in. So thank you to both of you for those questions. Uh, next time we should actually promote this so that I think I heard we just six people had signed up because we, we put a post out on LinkedIn, but we didn't really put any effort into promoting things. But it seems like the technology worked and we did get a couple questions coming in. So I think, yeah, it'd be fun to do this in the future and to have it where there is an audience who's able to be asking questions and no, no, a bigger no, no. audience to ask more questions throughout. No, I think it's great. And look, the way we like to do this as a company is we, we like to just test it out and make sure that uh, we, we got it going as opposed to we get a thousand people on this LinkedIn Live and you know we make a meal of it. You know, from that standpoint, and, you know, I, I think this actually adds to the podcast, the the variety of the podcast, because the podcast, you know, uh, it's been our the the participation rates and the the downloads and the views and all that have been keeps on growing and growing and growing. It's doing really well, and so we really want to be able to give back. And, you know, we're we're trying to think of what what are things we can do, and so I think having sort of a Q and A part piece of it would, would be great, and so. Why not also do it on LinkedIn where we can just, you know, republish it a, as a podcast later? So I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's quite viable and I think it allows for a good interactivity within the community. So uh, this was our maiden voyage on that. But uh, more importantly, I think it was a great article, Wade. Seriously, I, 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 think, uh, I think it has a lot, you know, it has a lot to sort of, a, a big thread to pull on. So I, th I think we got a lot of meat on this article that we can expand upon. I mean, my mind is already, you know, whirling with regards to how, you know, things that we can be doing with this, but there it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's mathematically, you can make a pretty strong case for income protection as a retirement style. But at the end of the day, I, I understand some people, they're probability based and optionality oriented. Total returns is still a viable approach. It may not be the most efficient, but it's a, it's good nonetheless. So at the end of the day, people have options. And, and and just you shouldn't criticize anyone who is looking for an income protection approach because really the math is in favor of it. And that's this is just another example of that idea. All righty. Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, Melody, thank you for um, handling the questions in the back and making it go smoothly as always. Much appreciated. And feel free to hit the, the end meeting for all but. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Retire with Style, the first live episode on LinkedIn Live. And we'll catch you next week. All right. Bye. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. 
The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.